and welcome to The Messy Middle. I'm your host, Andrew Horsfield, and I hope that wherever you're listening from, you're safely enjoying some of the freedoms that we're now being afforded as corona restrictions are starting to ease. The philosophy of this podcast is that success rarely occurs in a straight line. So being able to find a way, not lose your way when things get tough is a critical skill for any modern day leader. And this podcast is designed for astute listeners like you who want to learn and then leverage the lessons from leaders who are already delivering results in a demanding context. You can find out more or subscribe if you enjoyed this episode at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash podcast. A long time ago before giving a speech, my father gave me the advice that I should be sincere, be brief and then be seated. And while this seemed good advice at the time, it appears a little light on based on the conversation this month with storytelling expert Gabrielle Dolan. Gabrielle is a highly sought after speaker, educator and author who's helped countless of Australia's top 50 companies humanise their communications. And in this episode, we discuss why storytelling is important, how to structure a good story and what makes a difference between a good story and self-indulgent waffle. Raoul also shares her passion and even challenges the host about using less jargon in the way we communicate in our everyday lives. A practical and insightful conversation. Please enjoy the wit and wisdom of storytelling expert Gabrielle Dolan. Raoul, welcome to The Messy Metal. It's absolutely great to be talking with you. I'm very delighted to be smack bang in The Messy Middle. Just as a starting point, just tell me, how are you adjusting to this new reality that we're in? Well, I'm sort of secretly really enjoying it. I mean, um, you know, in March, when it all hit mid-March, my all my face-to-face work and international speaking just stopped overnight. So, you know, uh, over those next few months, I was meant to be in New Zealand, I was meant to be in Boston, I was meant to be in London, um, Columbus, Chicago. So that all stopped and all the face-to-face training stopped. But, um, look, I've actually really enjoyed the slower pace. Uh, you know, we, I mean, I'm very grateful that we're in a position where I'm not desperately needing the next sale. But um, so I, I'm a, because of that, I'm allowing myself to enjoy it. I'm, I'm doing a huge amount of running. I think it's the fittest I've been in about 25 years and um, spending my time trying to write my next book. So here it's all good. Tell me, what, what have you learned about yourself or what surprised you about yourself during this period? You know, I think there's a couple of things that surprised me. I think it surprised me that I've actually enjoyed um, this slower pace. I, I would have described myself, and I probably still do describe myself as a massive extrovert, so I do get a lot of energy um, of spending time with people. Um so it surprised me that I haven't – I've missed it a bit. I mean, I clearly miss catching up with some friends and people when I'm hanging out to do some face-to-face training again. But it's surprised me that I've enjoyed um, being by myself a lot more and just just noticing things. I, uh, Like I said, I have been doing a bit, bit of running and what I'm noticing now is I'll run along and I noticed how beautiful a tree is, for example. Um, maybe it's just an excuse to stop and take a photo, but I'm noticing things and um, – I'm, I'm based in Melbourne uh, around near Princess Park. So I've been running around Princess Park in Carlton probably for a good 25 years. And the other day I ran around and I noticed this little statue that I had never seen before. So um, I took a photo. It's this beautiful statue by the little mini pond there. 
Um, and I've never seen it before. And then I thought, oh, maybe it's new. And I so I Googled it and it's been in that park for 25 years and I have not noticed it before. So um, it's those things I'm, I'm surprised that just, it's, you know, I guess it's no, no brainwave that when you slow down, you start to notice things a lot more. With this lockdown and social distancing and this forced isolation and slowdown, there's a lot that we are learning about ourselves, I think, about how we operate and some of the gratitude that we have or the things we do have in our life or that are around us that hopefully as we go back to whatever a new normal is, if there's ever a a normal, people will take those really good bits of this experience and, and look to embed them in their life. I think that's really nice. And the second part that leads into why we're talking at all is because of the way you crafted such a beautiful story and how you answered that because you, that's your expertise and authority, right? You're a highly sought-after authority in storytelling and business communication. And I just wondered, where did your interest in effective message management kick off or come from? I have a couple of answers for that. I, the, um, sometimes I often say that I'm, um, I'm one of eight children and I'm, I'm the sixth. So uh, to me, telling a good story was the only way to get your parents' attention. <laughs> and um, I think I've always liked telling stories, but it was when I was working at National Australia Bank in a couple of senior leadership roles that I started to discover the power of sharing stories in business. And it was probably in my last couple of years at NAB when I was um, involved in a major project of implementing SAP across NAB. And this was about 20 years ago that what I noticed is that when I shared a personal story to communicate a business message, it just got a lot more cut through and people would not only understand what I was saying more effectively, but they'd remember it. And then I just started to notice that the really great leaders that I saw around the company were were sharing stories. I'd go to conferences and you'd see speaker after speaker and the brilliant speakers I noticed were sharing stories. So I just sort of thought there's something in this, there's something in the power of sharing personal stories to communicate your business messages a lot um, more effectively. And, you know, I'd, I'd been involved in designing and delivering leadership development programs at NAB and so um, it was, it's over 15 years ago now I just decided to leave NAB and think I think storytelling is a really critical skill that um, people can learn and I had a look around and there was no one teaching it so I thought, what the hell, I'll give that a crack and, and that was 15 years ago and... Here we are 15 years later with storytelling is um, a red-hot skill and everyone's talking about it, which they certainly were not 15 years ago. I can tell you that right now. You mentioned about the the cut-through and people connecting with a message. Is that why storytelling is so important to effective communication, just the connection of of people to a, a particular message? Yeah, look, there's a, there's a couple of reasons why storytelling is so powerful. Um one is when you share a story, people connect with that emotionally. And too often in business, we try to communicate through logic. And logic's still important. You still need it. But logic doesn't influence people and people don't engage in logic. So, um, you know, I, I truly believe that the big reason why change fails is we try to lead change through logic when we should be, you know, tapping into emotion. And, you know, and things like when you're communicating values, like, you know, when you're communicating you know, a company value or your individual leadership value, um, you know, say integrity, 
you, you can't communicate that through logic. You've got to communicate it through stories. So, um, yeah, stories help people not only understand the message better, but they because of they they connect with it on a, an emotional level, um, they remember it and they engage with it more effectively. Yeah, and can you give us an example of that sort of rational, logical side versus emotional side? I think that would be really interesting for people to to have as a, an example because I'm thinking of, uh, you know, accountants and people in finance and people who might be running projects where it is about time and budget and scope and all those things who might be saying, yeah, yeah, but we've still got that to deliver and that's what people ask us about. So can you give a, a good example of that for us? A lot of people think when you say personal storytelling, it's about, you know, sharing your deepest, darkest fears and secrets and, your, you know, your biggest aha moments in life. And, it, and it's not about that. It's, it's how you got, you've got a really clear business message and how you can share a personal story to do it. So an example, um, a really great example that demonstrates this is I worked with, um, I ran a workshop with a, a risk team. And so the head of risk, her name was Rosemary. Now, Rosemary said that the biggest issue she had um, in her in her role was that when she was trying to talk about risk management to the business units that, you know, she supported, they would all look at her and go, well, you're the risk manager, that's your job. And she had tried through logic, through facts, through figures, through case study after case study, of explaining to them that she cannot manage their risk for them, all she can do is help them manage the risk. So she had tried to communicate that message through logic, like for years, and and she said it just she was really frustrated because she said the behaviour is just not changing. Um, and look, you know, anyone in support roles probably has that experience too. So this is the story that Rosemary um, came up with. So you know, I, I run workshops, and so it's a you know, it's like a three-hour process, but this is the story she came up with and that she started to share with the business units that she supports. She said, when I was a kid, I grew up on a farm. And growing up on a farm, there was all these dangers we needed to be aware of, but mum would teach us what to do. So we knew what to do if we ever came across a red-backed spider in the timber heap. We knew about potential traps in the dam after heavy rain, and we knew what to do if we came across a snake in the summer. And I remember this stinking hot day, mum was yelling at me to get my bike from the front gate. So I ran down the path and then I just froze because in front of my bike was this massive copperhead snake. But I remembered everything mum taught us to do. So I played statues and I slowly walked backwards until there was enough space between me and the snake and I ran back to the house to tell mum. And I'm sharing this with you because it reminds me of the role we play in risk. All I can do is give you the skills, knowledge and advice so when you come across your own copperhead snake, regardless of what that looks like, you will know what to do. So that's the story Rosemary shared and, and, when, I, and when I share that and, you know, I'll ask the question to your listeners now, does that help you understand the role of a risk manager? Does it help you understand not only the role of the risk manager but the role you play in managing risk? I hope the answer is yes, that it does. Well, I could even ask it to you, Andrew. Does that help you understand the role of a risk manager better? Yeah, of course it does. And, you know, even yeah, yeah. as you're telling the story, you know, you're leaning in as opposed to getting washed over by numbers or facts or data. Yeah, absolutely. And and did you visualise it? Yes. Yeah, I've provided you enough information that you've visualised it. 
And and the reason you're leaning in, like you just said, I'm leaning in, I'm listening, is because at some level that's tapping into emotion. So, and when I say emotion, I'm not talking about, you know, emotional, like you got to be really scared of snakes or you got to get people crying, but at some level that's tapped into emotion. So, again, if you talk about the power of storytelling, at a, at a really basic level, it helps you get your message across better. Um, but the other cool thing is they, they could actually retell that. Like you could you could retell that story to someone else without losing its meaning. It wouldn't be word for word. It doesn't have to be word for word. So they are some of your fundamental challenges in business, especially when you're communicating. So do people understand what you're saying? Do they really understand it? Can they remember it? when the presentation's finished, the meeting over, the meeting's over, and can they actually retell it to other people? And and a, and a story will do that. A story will give you traction on those three things where facts, data, logic um, won't. And you mentioned before about people thinking storytelling sort of the personal. I remember as a young kid I had to speak at my sister's birthday, her 21st, and, you know, Dad sort of said to me, look, the three things you have to remember is be sincere be brief and then be seated. And I thought it was a nice little way of reminding me about what my role was. And I just wondered for you, because you mentioned before about storytelling that can go on, what are some of the common mistakes people make that turns a compelling story into self-indulgent waffle? A lot of people, when they go storytelling, you sort of they roll their eyes and go, oh God, you know, I know this person tells a story and they go on and on forever. So some of the big mistakes people make is that their stories are way too long. So I have a theory that I reckon after about three minutes, your audience will be thinking, if not saying, get to the point. And you want to be finished your story well and truly before anyone is even thinking, get to the point. You, you want them engaged the entire time. So my rule is that your story should be around about one to two minutes, like two minutes at the most. And there's a real discipline in getting your stories under two minutes. So, what, so one of the things is you've got to be really clear on the message. You've got to be really clear. So a, a, a mistake people make is they're not really clear on the message, which means their stories are just all waffly and they tell the story and people go, what the hell was that to do with anything? Because the storyteller doesn't even know what it's about. Well, they have so much. They, they start telling one thing and then add the three other things because they want to just add those bits because I think they might be important. It becomes this big soup of nothing. Absolutely. And that's the other mistake, that they've got too many messages in your story. So you've got to have one message per story because the moment you go, okay, so I want them to understand this, this, and this, well, that's, you know, that's three messages. So you have three stories. So the moment you try to cram too many messages into your story, it means you've got to add in more information, um, which is, it just makes it too long. So there's a lot of discipline and, you know, I guess going back to why I even started this, I, I knew that this was a really critical skill, but I also knew it didn't come natural to people. Like there's a really big difference between sharing stories with your mates and sharing stories at work, and it's an absolute skill. The hardest part of storytelling in business is the ending. So how do you end it where people get the message, but you're not telling them the message? I teach a framework of how to start your story, what to put it in the middle and how to end it. And the two biggest mistakes with beginning and end is people start with let me tell you a story. And can you can you just feel your physical reaction to that when people go let me tell you a story? It's like, oh, please don't. Um, but 
that's so you've turned you've turned people off before you've even started the story and then they end their story with so the moral of the story is so you're telling me the point if you're telling me the point just tell me the point it's so um you know we be, we become really directive so a mistake people make is they become directive at the end with their storytelling when storytelling should be really um it should be inviting, actually, really respectful, inviting. Um, so, th- so that's some of the common mistakes. And and also to pick up on what your dad said about sincere, is um, they've got to be authentic. They've got to only not to be you know congruent with what you believe. It's not marketing spin, but the stories have to be true. When I run my workshops, I ask that question: Do your stories have to be necessarily true as long as they're believable? And I am still amazed how the conversation can go on for quite a while of people saying that they don't necessarily need to be true. And I just think it's just not worth the backlash on your credibility to make up stories. I'm also wondering, Raoul, is it like in listening to the story you told about the copperhead snake, while I was listening to your story and I was understanding uh, about risk, which is not an area that I spend a lot of time in but could understand that, I was also thinking about my own scenario of, of, of risk or how I'm mitigating that. Is that part of the power of storytelling where it's not just this one linear, when people say, oh, and the moral of the story is and let me tell you a story, it becomes just a almost like a one version as opposed to people applying it to their own version and own reality? Yeah, absolutely. So when you end your story with, so the moral of the story is this, you are telling the listener what you want them to know where if you leave it and I'm not saying leave it open-ended because again this is the real skill you want to get it across but you also want to leave it up to them to connect to your story so they may get the message but like like you've just said Andrew you might be you that might actually then spark other stories or other situations so again there's you know I always say at a bare basic level a story a story helps you communicate your message better, but there's so many other hidden benefits. Like I, I get to know you more as a leader um, or, or as a person. I, w- with your clients, with your team, it strength. Every time you share a personal story, it reveals something about you. So it strengthens relationships. It can fast track respect. And do you find in that process where you're working with people, whether one on one or in a workshop? that them finding their own stories that they want to stand behind is a difficult process for a lot of people that we sort of disown that as, oh, that's not important or everyone does that or no one would be interested in that, all of that background conversation that could get in the way of people mining their life for, for the stories that they could use? A lot of people come when I work with them, they they say, I, d- I don't have any stories, I'm, I'm just normal <laughs> and it was like normal's good. So, again, they're, they're thinking that to share a story in business, it has to be, you know, climbing Mount Everest type stories. And it, and it's not about that. Um, it's your day-to-day stories are the most relatable. So a lot of people come in with, I actually don't have any stories big enough. Um, why would anyone even be interested in my stories? So one of, one of the cool things around when I get people to share stories is they actually experience the power of storytelling. I can tell a story, like, you know, I've told the Copperhead Snake story and you can go, oh, that was really good. But there's a bit of you that might going, yeah, but you're a professional and you're, you do this, you're really good at it. But when you experience your colleague sharing a personal story and 
next colleague sharing a personal story and you've sat around and listened to five of your colleagues share personal stories and they're all being interesting and they're all the day-to-day stuff that you're, you're sharing, you actually experience how powerful that is. And, and to me, that's the real that's the real shift in the learning where people experience for themselves how powerful it is. That's when they go, well, this stuff, this works. This actually really works. Yeah, I really like that, Raoul, in terms of that shared experience that, that lifts people up together. Are there specific times or circumstances where stories are, are more effective as a mode of communication or, or is this every day, all the time, as part of how we communicate and connect with people? So I, I think about what you're trying to achieve and we, and that's how you determine to use a story. So if you're trying to influence someone, then you're going to need a story for that because all logic does is inform people. It doesn't influence people. And I, and I often say that if logic did more than inform people, um, none of us, none of us would smoke. We, we wouldn't speed. We, you know, we wouldn't, we'd eat healthy and exercise every day yet we don't. So logic just informs us. So if you're trying to influence people, you're going to need a story. So what do I mean by influence? If you want people to buy your product, you're going to need a story. If you're trying, and when I say buy, when you're trying to sell, you might be selling an idea, you might be selling a new strategy. So when you're rolling out a new change or strategy, use stories to do that because you're trying to influence people. And, and again, like I said before, most change fails because we try to um, lead change through logic. If we go back to the copperhead snake example, Rosemary was saying time after time she was telling them why they needed to take control of their risk management and why she couldn't be. And she said it was only through that story that she changed behaviour. So she was throwing logic, 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 trying to influence, and that one story um, influenced behaviour. So she said uh, every time she'd share it, at the end of the meeting, people would go, okay, so have we identified all our copperhead snakes? So they're the times you should share it. If you're doing a, if you're doing a presentation, I would open with a personal story. So again, if you know, if you talk about Rosemary, if Rosemary was giving a presentation on risk management, she would get up, walk on stage or walk, walk in front of the room, and first thing she'd say is, when I was a kid, I grew up on a farm. I mean, first, how much more engaging is that to a start of a presentation as opposed, thank you, everyone, today I want to talk to you about risk management. I was like, Wah. So she would tell the story, start with the story, and then go, so... Today, I want to talk to you about helping you identify all the copperhead snakes in your business. So I, I would start a presentation with it, maybe end a presentation with it, but it all comes down if you're trying to influence people, you need a story, and if you really want them to remember a message. So, again, if you're, doing, if you're speaking to your team or a client or doing a presentation, I always say what is the one key message that if they, if they took that one message, you'd be happy, but just one and have a story around that because I can guarantee you you could speak for 60 minutes and the only thing they're going to remember is the story that you shared. Obviously, you've you know, done a, a great job of selling storytelling, even though that's not what you're here for. It's your passion and your calling, but it, it makes complete sense. If someone's talking about like a, a one-hour presentation they've got to give or it's part of a, a 30 minute presentation is what you're saying with that around stories is that not everything is a story into a story into a story. It, it's just those 
highlighted moments or critical message that that really the story plays its most important role? If you if you go to see a motivational speaker, for example, that that's that's the realm of a motivational speaker. That's story up, story up, like a sporting celebrity. But that's fine. But if you're doing uh, like a work presentation and it's thirty minutes. I would be, I mean, clearly you're going to have to have a bit of logic in there and processes or whatever, but just be mindful of could, could you start with a story to get people really engaged and start with a personal story and then you might go into the work and just if you almost think of it, if you think of a presentation as a roller coaster ride, the moment you start going into process and detail, people start to lose engagement. But that's okay because they still need it. So think of it, it was like, okay, so when you've when you've gone into too much detail and logic, how can you bring it right back up again through a story? And it doesn't always it's not always a personal story. It could be an example. So you could start with a personal story, do some detail, logic, facts and figures. If you're giving a piece of data, like a, you know, twenty seven percent of blah blah blah, you could then go, for example, John, who works in our Sydney branch, was telling me the other day, and you provide an example to bring that data alive. So it's just how you can um, go with logic and emotion and, and keep them. So, you, so you, you're trying to keep people engaged the entire time. Is there a difference, Raoul, in the, in the format of a, you know, of a story into a corporate presentation versus a 21st speech, or do they... Does the structure have a similar style and the story you might choose be the variable for those different environments? I had the oh, the great honour, and I'm going to say it was an honour, even though it was sad to do my father's eulogy at the end of last year. And, uh, of course, the, my whole family, my, all my brothers and sisters said, well, you're doing it because you're the speaker. But it, it was an honour and I'd love to do it. But it was stories. It was literally, um, you know, I think it went for about 15 minutes and there was just little, you know, snippets of his life, but it was told through stories. And the amount of people that um, had only met my dad once or twice or actually didn't even know my dad because they were there as, you know, some of my colleagues were there, that came up and said, God, I know I would have really liked your dad and I got to really know him. So, again, that that's what stories can do. They can just get to know people. But, yeah, in a, in a 21st speech or a whatever those speeches, you probably want to make, you can make them a lot more funnier than perhaps in business, but they're this, this still got to be appropriate. <laughs> they still have to be appropriate. How can people start using stories more regularly or powerfully in their in their life and work? Do you have any tips that they might be uh, that they could think about to to start to do things differently for for what they've heard already from you? Yeah, look, I think one of the things often if we you know we've got to give a team meeting or a presentation, we sit down and think about <clears throat> you know well what are the key messages I want to get across? Hopefully, we're doing that. We're thinking about that. I would just ask myself the very next question is, well, what stories can I tell to communicate this? Now, there, there might not be any or they might not always be stories, but we should be, you should ask yourself that because, you know, if you don't ask what stories can I use, I can guarantee you you're not using stories. So, th- so that's one thing. Um, but on my website, I do have a seven-day storytelling starter kit. So that's just, you know, you, it's free to subscribe to that. And that that you'll get an email from me once a day for a week. Um, it contains a really short video and it, it's just designed to help you start thinking about 
how you could start um, using stories. But um, one of the things I cover in that is, you know, when I said people think I don't have any stories, I would say as a bit of an activity with a, you know, just, just sit down with a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, whatever, and just, you know, with a blank piece of paper, just think of all the things that have happened in your life and just write them down. Um, and, and the reason I say sit with it for a while, because you'll do this initially and you'll pull out the really big things in your life, like getting married, having kids, moving country, breaking your leg or something. But if you sit there, random stuff will come into your mind that you haven't thought about for years. Um, and you'd be surprised how you go, oh, I could use that story. Like, that, you know, that's, that's a great story about being courageous. Or that's about a great story about, you know, never lying to people. Or that's a great story about being transparent, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden you'll find um, these stories from your previous life that you could use can i add if i if i may be bold that for for people to say don't uh don't necessarily worry about perfection you know that that to craft a great story i think takes time and iteration and practice and and i'm thinking about you know ted talks and things like that where people practice for for a long time at intense periods to come across as just naturally gifted and like they've got it all together it's not about being perfect, but you absolutely need to prepare your stories and you need to practice them. The amount of times I've had people in my workshops say, you know, point out to some really brilliant storytellers in their company saying they're natural, they're a natural story, and I just have a little chuckle to myself and think, hmm, they've attended my workshop four times or I've been working with them for two years. Um, they're brilliant, but it's not natural. It's because they've worked at it. And and it comes across natural because they've put so much effort into it. One of the ultimate expressions of your, you know, passion around good communication is is jargon-free Fridays, this, this movement that you've created. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what you're trying to accomplish? Yeah, look, this is um, Jargon Free Fridays I started, oh, God, about four or five years ago now. And it's, um, look, it's a fun way to raise awareness to what I think is actually a pretty serious problem with communication. So we often, every time we use jargon or acronyms, we are actually, whether we know it or not, we are actually disconnecting and isolating people. So some people do that deliberately. But a lot of the time we don't do it and we don't even know it's jargon. So it's, it's raising awareness that, you know, when we're using jargon, um, it's unless everyone knows what it means, we're actually not communicating much. And then the worst is acronyms because for every acronym you use, there are multiple variations of, of the same acronym. And so when you use an acronym, you are putting all the onus on the audience, the listener or the reader, to do that interpretation. So it, it's actually just quite lazy, I think, and, and, it's, and it's ineffective because it can lead to miscommunication. Um, I remember once I was talking to a woman and I, after about 10 minutes I just kept wondering why we felt like we were having different conversations. And then I said, can I just ask, when you say SME, are you talking about subject matter expert? And she went, no, I'm talking about small to medium enterprise. And I was like, ah, no wonder it feels like we're having a different conversation because we actually were talking about two completely different things. So, um, yeah, jargon and acronyms, It's we've we just got to be aware how often we use it because we use it a lot. Yeah, and I reckon acronyms are the, the 
you know, the low-hanging fruit that you've mentioned. I, I also think there's those phrases in organisations that... Andrew, sorry to interrupt. Did you just say low-hanging yes. fruit? <laughs> yes. There you go. <laughs> yeah. It's a joke, but it's how easily we Guilty use as it. charged. Where, you know, could you imagine if our parents were hanging around and they would go, what, what, is, what's, what does Andrew do? Does he pick fruit? And so, <laughs> Despite my urge to edit that out, Ralph, I think I might just keep it in. Keep that in. Keep that in. But that's that's exactly right. And that's probably the point I was going to make is that, you know, where we say we've we've got to synergize or we've got to take this offline mm-hmm. or so it's not just the jargon, but it's the it's the what does that mean? Is it sort of look, we don't trust everyone in this room with this information, so we have to talk about it privately, or what does that yeah. mean, taking it offline? And is it helping our cultures and people be be better or and building the culture we want, or is it, or is it working against that? Well, things like take it offline. I just think it means please don't ever raise that again. We're not going to talk about it. People don't want to do it. And look, you know, if everyone understands what it means, then you know. And I had a joke joke about low hanging fruit. But if everyone around the table knows what that means, then it can become quite effective shorthand for let's do the easiest things. They're going to have the greatest impact. Blah blah blah. So we can just go low-hanging fruit and go, yeah, that's what it means. But the, the mistake we make is not everyone knows what it means. I think so, the yeah. other point you mentioned, Rao, which is really important too for people who who make that assumption that we know, it perpetuates within an organisation because you don't want to be the person who doesn't know because it's like, are you kidding? You don't know what that means. And so it everyone sort of assumes they know and but are sitting there not knowing and it, it just, I suppose, is your point, is it aids ineffective communication because no one wants to speak out and be that person who says, what does that actually mean? You know, you see when new people start that um, they, they, they might ask a few times, what does that mean? But they'll ask it a few times and then they'll just stop asking because they, the, every, everyone's going, oh, everyone else knows what it means. I, I better not ask, but I want to look stupid. Um, but I can guarantee you the, yeah, the vast majority don't. So, so we, what we're doing is we're potentially disconnecting and isolating people um, and then even worse, you could go, so do you know what that means? And people go, yes, but they're meaning completely something completely different. I mean, I think the example about STIs, STIs to me in my corporate career always meant short-term incentives, but now you say STIs and everyone giggles because it's sexually transmitted infection. So, you know, that's a, that's an awkward question. You ask someone in a job interview what STIs they currently have. So, <laughs> if people want to delve a little bit deeper around communication and beyond your own work, which we'll talk about in a minute or share in a minute, um, who should they follow, read, watch, listen to, to to be more effective uh, in their communication? You know, besides me, of course. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's there's so many articles and books and podcasts and YouTubes on communication and leadership, and um, so you know, you you can look into all of them. But I, I would just, I think it's more important to just constantly look at yourself and question: Is this a good way to communicate? I, I would even be asking your team for feedback is how are they feeling do they want more from you how can you support them better are they getting the communication they need it's just one of these things that I, I don't think um, we put enough time and effort into and I often talk you know if you're if you're a CEO or you're running a small business or you're a senior manager and do, do the financials if you've got your team in the room 
um, and again, whether it's 10 or whether it's 100, just do the financials of what you pay them an hour and how much it's costing for them to be sitting in the room and then make sure that whatever that figure is, that it's worthwhile, that you, you know, you have given them the value that's worthwhile that. So I, I see CEOs speak to thousands, you know, of their leaders and you're thinking, okay, this, this is probably half a million dollars of value that people have come to sit and watch you speak. So are, are you giving them half a million dollars of value? So just just take it seriously, I think, put, put a lot of time because ultimately, yes, when you're a manager, when you're running your small business, you get paid to make decisions, but you know, you're also paid to communicate and influence and that, that's the role of a leader. And what about for you, Raoul? Where do people find you and reach out to you? And you mentioned about the seven-day starter kit that, that people might want to tap into as a starting point. How do they find you? Yeah, well, a couple of things. I'll start with the Jargon Free Friday. So if, the, if, that's, if that's a challenge you want to take up and there's a couple of funny videos on there, that's um, you know, the website jargonfreefridays.com. I'll definitely do that after yeah. uh, my experience. My website's gabrieldolan.com. So if you get on that, you can access I've got a lot of free resources on that, so a lot of free white papers, um, you know, the, the seven-day storytelling starter kits on that. So you can download that, which means you will get my um, weekly uh, blog, um, and and there's a couple of books. There's uh, I'm about to write, or I'm writing my fifth book. But if you wanted, if you looked at my website and the books, um, the two books I would start with. If you're only interested in stories, um, stories for work is a really good place to start. If you're interested in um, real communication as well as stories. Then my latest book, Real Communication, How to Be You and Lead True, is probably a good read. And um, I'm pretty proud of that. That was that was um, a finalist for business book of the Australian Business Book of the Year last year. So I'm pretty happy with that one. So I think I think they're both they're two good reads. Brilliant. And we'll obviously put all those links uh, on the show notes to the to the bottom of the podcast. Thanks so much, Raoul. Communication, as you've articulated so well in the last sort of 45 minutes or so, is is such an important part of our everyday life and the way we work and live. And essentially, if we're not interesting, we're not going to be engaging for people. And so I really appreciate you coming onto the podcast and sharing your advice and some pretty useful ideas and tips that's going to help us all be smarter, clever and more compelling in the way we communicate. So I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much for coming on. Just a couple of things before we wrap up. If you enjoyed this episode and think listening to more interesting and insightful conversations would be good company as you do your bit and bunker down to battle the coronavirus, then please subscribe by clicking on your preferred podcasting platform at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to receive a monthly email from me with insider content, videos, recommended reading, and even some free events I'm running to help you advance people in performance, then sign up for content that's been curated specifically for curious minds like yours at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash newsletter. Thanks for listening.